I look forward to looking at some of the things he's going to do as well. It was um, really, really great conversation. It's nice. It's nice to catch up with friends, particularly over the the recent times. Uh, but it's nice to catch up and and and, and chew the fat and, and have a bit of a conversation as well. And I thought it was a really. I got a lot from this. Hopefully, you do too about you know the essences of hard work and what it's like to chase dreams and chase the things that you want to do and and really apply yourself to something. So I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. Uh, this is my conversation with Frank Fonsere. It's nice, it's nice to catch up with friends, particularly over the, the recent times, uh, but it's nice to catch up and, 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 and chew the fat and, and have a bit of a conversation as well. And I thought it was a really – I got a lot from this. Hopefully, you do too about you know the essences of hard work and what it's like to chase dreams and chase the things that you want to do and, and really apply yourself to something. So I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. Uh, this is my conversation with Frank Fonsere. That I responded to, and um, I think it was that way for a lot of people my age, you know, and um, and then you know I just remember music uh, in the car, you know, whenever we'd be driving, we'd always have the radio on. Um, when I was young, we used to travel between New Jersey, where I lived, and Georgia, which is about uh, you know, fourteen hours worth of driving, and uh, we would come down to Georgia to visit my my grandmother over summers and so with two kids in the car we usually broke the trip up you know over two days and my sister and i and um back then there was nothing but the radio you know and so mm -hmm. the radio was always on and i just remember all those great songs of the 70s were just a part of my existence and um as i got older i started discovering music on my own the first uh discovery of my own was kiss when i was uh, about 10 years old saw them on tv and um, of course, as many kids my age was just absolutely blown away, you know, by the visual and the music and everything. It was just, you know, incredible. And, you know, that's when I decided that I wanted to play music. I, re I remember uh, I actually started out with a guitar because I thought I wanted to play guitar and I didn't really take to it that well. Um, I didn't really like the lessons very much. And um I thought after that, I think I want to switch to drums. And as soon as I switched to drums, it was just like, I just took to it right away. You know, you couldn't stop me. I just couldn't stop. You know, in school, I was constantly like, you know, beating out rhythms on my desk and being, you know, sent out into the hall, um, disturbing the class. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, convinced that, you know, rock stardom was in my, was in my future. Cause that's all I could, you know, that's, that was all I could think about was, you know, being on stage, you know, to seeing, seeing kiss when I was 10 years old, um, in an arena when, you know, with the makeup and the lights and the, and the, and the staging and everything was just a life changing experience. And it was like what I want to do. I want to be on stage. <clears throat> and from there I graduated on to Van Halen and ACDC and, um, from there into a lot of the other stuff that came along with the kind of new, wave of heavy metal in the in the 80s you know a lot of hair bands the rat and motley crew and twisted sister and, and then of course you know iron maiden and judas priest also from like the british new wave of heavy metal just all that stuff in the 80s you know i just absorbed it all and um and then uh as i started getting older you know the the trend started moving towards like the the funk metal type thing and you know thrash and and funk metal and all these kind of uh, different sub-genres sub of metal and um, and then that's you know when I was in uh, the early 90s is when I you know I actually met Rich Ward in 88 and um, but I ended up you know working with him and Stuck Mojo in the early 90s um, 
you know, we uh, we parted ways for a little while, and that's when the band got signed and put out the first record. And I rejoined the band to to do everything subsequently uh, from then. And uh, you know, from there in the two thousands, uh, Fozzie came along, and and that's uh, and that's been my and you know, playing for Fozzie's been basically my existence for the last twenty years, a little over twenty years. And that's wow. the that's the Cliff Notes version of my story. You, you've 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 yeah the cliff notes because you know you go back and look at the the records that you played on and the bands that you've been in and it's a it's a wonderful body of work frank mm. you know it's a wonderful i mean it makes sense i mean i knew what the, the bands that you were into and i who knew who you, who you listened to so it made sense that that's the musical output that you had as well but i mean there's a lot to unpack there i mean the first thing is that people don't realize even now how important rock radio is in the States, in the U S mm-hmm. is still a thing, even with the internet and what have you, the, the radio is, is a massive way of, of, of getting new music out to people. And, and cause it's on, uh, most people are driving around the country and during that time is when they're listening. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's, it was so important back then. It's probably just as important now that you had in order to break the U S especially if you went from the U S you had to make it on radio. It was absolutely uh, it, it, the most important thing in the world and then so it makes yeah. sense that you traveling you're going to get that ingested into you o- over time and so mm-hmm. uh, when did when did you kind of go okay that you so you, you switch from guitar to drums which happens quite a lot so from the people i've talked to mm-hmm. they go from guitar to drums and you and you decide it's going to be drums did where, how did did you go out and buy a set of drums or were there around in the house or where did they did you just go and buy a set no they weren't around um I was given a guitar as a present. Mm. Um, I think maybe for Christmas. I'm not sure. I was very young, and um, you know, and I, I loved it. I mean, I loved posing in the mirror with it, obviously, and <laughs> sure. and pretend, pretending like I was playing. Um, and you know, it's so funny that guitar meant so much to me as as a young kid. If I saw it now, it'd probably be the cheapest. You know, not worth anything. You know, yeah, but, uh, it's, but it's your rosebud, isn't it? It's your rosebud. It's, right. It, it holds such a moment. Yeah. 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 And um, but I started taking lessons with this guy who is this older, uh, very kind of jazz oriented, uh, uh, maybe if not jazz, uh, you know, bebop or big band or whatever. You know, he wasn't coming from I mean, because I was 10 years old and this was in the, right. you know, the uh, you know late 70s, you know, like 1977. Yeah. And uh, so. He was probably the age I am now. He was probably that age then. So, you know, he he was coming up in the you know early 20th century where rock and roll didn't even exist. Yeah. And so he just came from a very old school, you know, like just a whole different world musically. Was, was he frightening you with like Buddy Rich and stuff like that? Was he was he kind well, of this was showing you these this guys? Was my, this was my guitar teacher. So. Oh, right. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 And he kept though the thing i hated most was he kept telling me you have to develop calluses on your fingers and he would <laughs> i he would show me how to finger a chord on the neck and right. and he would press my fingers down really hard <laughs> you know like pre- you know you got to get calluses you got to get calluses and I, I think he might have even been a you know he might have even been a sadist or something because he was like it really <laughs> all good hurt, teachers are you know? surely yeah yeah i mean i think there was i actually really think there might have been something a little wrong with this guy um, <laughs> yeah but, so, he, but then he forces you he presses your fingers down and he forces you this and then you become a drummer which is arguably even more strenuous on your hands you know what i mean it's even more yeah pain. yeah 
but at least the teacher I had when I first started taking drum lessons, not long after that, he wasn't a sadist. At least. <laughs> you know, he would, you know, he wouldn't try to develop, you know, I guess he, you know, he figured that calluses would happen just from the act of playing. He didn't, he wasn't trying to form them by like, you know, like, you know, well, the putting my hands in a, in a press or something. So <laughs> I just, so it just, I, I didn't really enjoy the guitar the mm. the lessons part of it maybe if i'd had a different teacher things would have been different yeah, well, but, yeah um so i think i told my mother i don't want to play guitar i want to play drums and and she was like well you know i bought you a guitar you didn't really take to it so we'll we'll buy you a drum and see see <laughs> one what happens so singular, one yeah drum. one drum just like <laughs> a drum and uh so i think it was for my birthday maybe um that year that i just got a little metal snare drum in a stand and uh, a pair of sticks and you know just kind of the starter Which kit way. and and as soon as i had the sticks in my hands and you know could pound on that snare drum i was just you know there was just no stopping me and so she saw that i took to that so okay we'll buy him an actual drum kit and of course it was you know like uh just an off-brand thing you know yeah. but it was just I, I loved it. I put it up in my room and, you know, I couldn't wait to come home from school to, to practice, you know, and I had the, the, the uh, vinyl albums on the stereo with the, the big clunky headphones um, and was just playing curly along the records. And and, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. With the curly <laughs> cord and the, and the big <laughs> clunky headphones and um, driving my poor grandmother crazy. We lived in my grandmother's house and sure. I had the bedroom upstairs and just, she, you know, she tried to accommodate me by like when I come home from school in the afternoon, she would go sit out on the, you know, in the yard or something, just enjoy the day while I took an hour or so to practice. And after a yeah. while, yeah, after a while, she would tell me, OK, that's enough for the day. And, um, <laughs> but in the neighborhood, it was funny because a lot of people um, told me that, you know, they could hear me from, you know, uh, many, many houses many away. Yeah. And I was told that at the time I was kind of a great babysitter because, you know, like a lot of kids, they would hear me and they would just be transfixed by it and like, and uh, staring at the window, you know, like, like, like cocking that? their ear to the yeah. window just to hear what I was doing, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, and that's just how it all started, you know, and then it started with trying to form bands and trying to play with other people. And, well, and you, well, uh, did you, you, so you went, you see, you see Kiss and, that cannot be under underestimated. Like the, the the first time most people would see Kiss. I mean, this was a, an incredible show back in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was the production level was it was it immense. You only have to look at Kiss Alive and to mm -hmm. see the linear notes to see how biblical that was. It was absolutely huge production thing, and that was must have blown. Dan McDowell talked talked about it, about being a massively transformative thing to see that because it wasn't just music. It was the whole like, wow, you can. Mm -hmm. do that that that's a, that's something that can happen was was like was was peter chris then one of your guys or did you go with other guys you know did you you gravitate to other people was it just a look or was it the drumming as well were you sitting there playing cold gin or were you kind of going with other guys then or how did you work no i mean he was definitely um he was definitely one of my my guys at the time because they were just my band and so i was I was into everything. And what's funny is, um, you think back on it, it seems like such a large part of your life. You think it lasts for years, but you know, I discovered them probably in late 1976 and it wasn't long before like around 79 or 80 that I started discovering, you know, other things. And so we're talking like less than four years 
of that, you know, like kind of formative period, which nowadays, you know, when you're a little bit older, four years is like the blink of an eye. And, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was my first, you know, Peter Chris, because he was the drummer for kiss, you know, I emulated him. And, uh, but as I started getting more into the eighties music, um, you know, and when I discovered like Alex Van Halen and then, you know, Neil Peart from rush and, and, um, you know, that's when, you know, my, my kind of drumming universe expanded, I guess you could say. And, um, uh, the first guy that really, really had an impression on me all around was Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. And I saw, uh, I, I knew who they were cause I was reading all the metal magazines at the time, you know, like the hip parader and circus and stuff like that. And I was always looking at those magazines and I, I was aware of who they were because I saw the pictures and it's like, Oh, they're doing the whole kiss thing, you know? And, um, but the first time I actually ever saw them was the video for look to kill in 1983. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember just the way Tommy Lee played the way he, you know, twirled sticks in between, in between strokes and, and the way he threw his arm over his head and just his whole kind of presentation as a player. Yeah. It was so much, it was, it was such a complete, package the visual element and the playing element and i just love the style of playing too that real just like what i call bottom up playing which is yeah. you know meaning like you know playing from the kick drums up you know as opposed to the toms and cymbals down yeah. um i know yeah. there's a lot of guys particularly probably in jazz where the emphasis of what you're doing is really for coming from the hands and like the feet are just kind of a some, something of an afterthought you know and mm-hmm. with metal it, you know the feet are always kind of the the basis for everything you're doing and he was that that first guy that i really just fell in love with his real four on the floor you know pedal to the metal the solid a lot of like you know quads you know right left right you know yeah. right hand left hand right foot left foot you know that kind of thing and uh, tommy aldridge is the same way i i discovered him a little bit later Uh, But he was Tommy Lee was the first drummer that really made that impression on me of like, you know, that's the kind of drummer I want to be as opposed to just, you know, I want to play those kind of songs or like, that's the kind of drummer I want to be. Yeah. You know, the two kick drums. You you wanted to have your your own individual personality that you brought to to the the, the instrument itself. Like, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's tough about like Tommy Lee and any Motley Crue as a whole is that, People see the initial thing. You see the look, and you see all the things that go with 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 Motley Crue. But there was there was real musicianship there. You know, Nicky Six is yeah. a great bass player, great bass, bass player, great songwriter as well. And some sometimes that gets a little bit lost in in that when because you, you, we don't think we don't think musicianship when we think Motley Crue. We should do, but we don't. We think of all the the, the things that uh, you know that, that they had going on. But it's the, yeah. these were great great musicians. And Tommy's a fantastic drummer, but. One of the things I think he brought to to, to it was being able to play for the song, and you know, and not overplay, not underplay. You know, I mean, Tommy Lee's a great Tommy Lee's a great drummer, particularly a great rock and metal drummer. Um, the thing about Nikki Six to me is like I'm not, you know, I'm not disparaging him as a musician, but he's a creative mind. That's yeah. that was the thing that made Motley Crue who they were was not that Nikki six was necessarily a great bass player, but he had a really, he had a really innovative and creative mind. And he, he knew how to take what had come before. And, you know, with like, 
you know, with glam and, and, uh, you know, like stuff like Alice Cooper and, and, and glam and stuff like that and combine it with elements of like, you know, uh, cheap trick and punk and just, you know, amalgamize it all into this really cool, unique thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and have catchy songs that went with it. I mean, they just kind of, uh, they, they just, they got all the pieces in place, you know, and that comes from being a really creative thinker mm-hmm. and a real, uh, a real deliberate thinker, you know, like, um, cause you, you know, you hear his story and he was determined from the time he was a young kid to make it, you know, he mm-hmm. wasn't determined to be a great musician. He was determined to make a name for himself, yeah. you know, in, in the genre. And that's what he was able to do and been on him for it. I was listening back a, a couple of days ago to, to Dr. Feelgood, the whole album, mainly because of Metallica were doing their 40th anniversary and, and obviously what Bob Rock had done with them, but they, they got Bob Rock or they booked Bob Rock because of the, uh, one of the things was the drum sound that he got on Dr. Feelgood, you know, Lars was like, I want some of that. And obviously we remember the black album and and what Lars did for drum sounds on that album. But by extension, you know, that was what was going on with, with Dr. Feelgood, you know, it was just as important, but I think you're absolutely right, Frank. I think that he was, he was good and he, and he is good. And, and that was that, but he was really, he wanted to be a star. You know, he wanted to, he wants to really put his, himself out there. He, he knew who he was and he, he knew what he wanted to do. And that's a, that's a great message. That's a great message for anybody, any musician to be, to try and be the best version of you, of you that you can be uh, on yeah. your given musician, musical instruments. So when did it go from you playing on your own to go into, okay, I'd like to get, a, a guitarist in and a bassist and I'd like to do some kind of garage band and type of, when did that start? It started a little bit later for me because most of the people I was friends with in high school, the high school I went to for whatever reason, didn't have a lot of uh, people that I associated with or people my age that were looking to be in bands. I mean, there were a few and I tried to, I tried to jam with some of them, but none of them really took it seriously. You know, so I never really had an actual band until like the year I graduated high school. Um, and just looking in the local paper for guys advertising, you know, like looking for other musicians. Um, I, uh, found a bass player and, um, you know, I went on auditions and, and, and did a lot, but I finally found, I found this bass player guy that he and I really, he and I connected, um, even though musically we came from different backgrounds, he was much more of a, like a punk rock, hardcore kind of player, but, uh, he wanted to expand his horizons and be more of a rock and roll guy. Um, then he and I found a guitar player who ended up actually, uh, for a long time was my actual brother-in-law. He, uh, he isn't anymore, but, um, and then we found a singer and another guitar player. And, and that was like my first band. And like the first time I ever played live legitimately in a full real band was uh, 1987, you know, like uh, almost two years after high school. So I, I was about 18. And, um, you know, and just from there, I was just single minded about trying to, you know, make it. And, and like this is a time, you know, this is pre-internet. This is pre you know, the, the, oh, yeah. the sort of the things that you could do, you had to, like you say, you had to look at a newspaper to find like yep. minded musicians. You had to go to an actual show and, and yes. actually talk to people. That, and, and that's how you would interact. And that's how you would kind of get connections. And so, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you decide to make this sort of um, a career and decide to something that, that you want to go into. 
and obviously it's not easy being a musician. It's a, it's a, it's a hard life. Um, so mm-hmm. what, what did you, what, how did you do? Did you immediately go into, did you have to have jobs that kind of, you know, supported you or did you, were you immediately able to earn as a musician or there was a, a bit of a period where it took to get to that? There, there was always jobs, you yeah. know, um, because I didn't want to be, and maybe this was a mistake, but you know, everything I'd always heard about being a working player, which meant, you know, learning to read music. And I remember um, Carmine of Peace, uh, who was the drummer for, uh, he, he played drums for Vanilla Fudge, and then he played drums for Rod Stewart, and then he ended up playing with Ozzy for a while. I'm sure anybody who knows heavy music knows that mm-hmm. name. I remember reading what he said about uh, playing, and he always said, you know, he always advocated reading music because you never know when you're going to have to play in a wedding band or you never know when you're going to have to, you know, do gigs in Vegas or whatever. You know, he had that yeah. kind of attitude of like, and I've known guys who are like, you always keep a tuxedo in the closet because you never know when you're going to have to do like a, <laughs> a formal gig, a wedding gig or whatever. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be a jack of all trades type. I didn't want to be a jack of all trades type of drummer i didn't want to be that guy who did has a jazz gig one day and then a rock gig the next and i didn't want to be you know at least initially i didn't want to be that guy i wanted to be the drummer of a band that had a name and made something of themselves and you know i guess kind of be a rock star in a way i mean i i i feel silly saying you know talking about wanting to be a rock star you know being a 54 year old guy um and so, but that was how I felt when I was young and I didn't want to be a working player. I didn't want to be the guy who could do any gig. I wanted to specialize and do something that I really loved to do, which was playing heavy drums. And, you know, I remember one time a guy, uh, I, I went to like a frat party or something with a bunch of guys when I was younger. And it was like before I really, I, I, I think I had that for, I think that first band was already formed and we were out playing, but we in where we were in atlanta at the time if you wanted to play live rock music you had to play cover gigs you had to play covers you know nobody was interested nobody was interested in original music this was like i said 1987 and um you know so the few clubs in town you had to play four sets of covers and maybe you could sneak one or two of your original songs in and that was kind of the template for how bands tried to make it and i hated that because I mean, I thought that was the only way to do it until I joined this band and our guitar player was like, we're playing all original music. I'm not playing covers. I'm not going out there and playing rap songs or something. And I didn't think you could do that. But once we started doing that, once we started writing our own material and we took that path, I all of a sudden, you know, my mind, my whole mindset switched. And that's what we, you know, I was all about just being an original band. And I remember I was with somebody who we had just seen like a, a frat party and they were playing a bunch of covers and, you know, had they had done really well and got a great response and everybody. And this this guy, I remember, told me, see, if you want to make it, you can't play heavy metal and you can't play original music. You have to play other people's stuff. And I just it almost drove me crazy. You know, I was yeah. like, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. who the hell are you? You don't know anything, you know. Yeah. And um, and so, uh, yeah, um, that's where I came from is that mindset of like, you have to play covers. You have to do this. You have to have a tuxedo in the closet ready. And I didn't want to do all that. You know, I wanted to be, you know, the drummer for uh, a band that was known for 
you know, I wanted to be like the drummer for Motley Crue or the drummer for, yeah. you know, Iron Maiden or the drummer for Van Halen. You know, it's like you don't picture Alex Van Halen in a tuxedo playing covers. You picture him playing arenas, playing yeah. Van Halen music. That's what I wanted. Not it's, realizing that for them to get where they were, they had to do a lot of that kind yeah, of, you know, yeah. I mean, backyard well, party cover band stuff. Yeah, Van Halen did uh, did a lot of that. You know, it's like it's well documented. They don't hide it. They talk about it a lot. In fact, you know, you look, you only have to look at like Diver Down, and you see that they played a lot of those covers back yeah. then, and they just did them, you know, on Diver Down. It's like it's yeah. it's nothing to be ashamed of being in covers. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're right that in, well, at the time wanna, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. But it, <laughs> I thought it was something to be ashamed of at the time. Yeah, but I mean, you can see now the re- reflection that, that that's essentially school for musicians, like or college, if you will, for musicians, where you learn right. how to set up a show and how to play and the little things that you have to do to kind of make a show yeah. happen. And you do that in the safety of knowing that you're playing a whole lot of cover songs. You don't actually have to worry about the song part of it because someone else did that for you. So you just have to worry about, you know, how to fill a room, how to entertain, and you learn how to do that. And some bands stay in that cycle and never come out of that because yeah. it's comfortable. And it, we can understand there's nothing yes. wrong with it. But right. in order, like you say, in order to become yourself, in order to become the, you know, what you want to be, you have to step out. Down and, and the way you do that is go, okay, now we're going to play our own material. And it's quite it's yeah. something that some bands never get past and, and it's musicians never get past. Um, but obviously yeah. you did. I mean, uh, one of our, our mutual friends, Rich, you know, Rich Ward, when did when did he come into your life then? Because you, you've had a, a fantastic relationship and done a lot of great stuff together. When did he kind of come into your life? I met him in 1988, so okay. sh- shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, um, what's funny is, is that band that I was playing with, uh, we were called Lethal Promise, which is kind of funny, but anyway. Lethal Promise, um, what, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the funny, the story behind that is, is uh, the guitar player for that band who ended up becoming eventually my brother-in-law for a long time. Um, he worked for Lockheed Martin, which is a defense contractor. Yeah. And uh, they're an aeronautics company, and they do a lot of defense contracting. And he, Lethal Promise was the name of a, a, sec- like a secret project that they were working on. Yeah. Project. That's, that's, and, that's pretty metal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he suggested that name when he found out that project was being basically abandoned like you know like yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff you know that they, uh, they start some kind of a project and then realize that's ah, not really working the way we wanted to and the, <laughs> the funding gets pulled or whatever yeah. and he said he wanted to use that name for a long time he said if if that project ever gets abandoned and that and i can use that name safely that's going to be the name of the band and so that's <laughs> how we ended up being called lethal promise it's funny though because we were much more of just kind of like your average melodic hard rock right. band than like a metal band but rich actually uh actually teched for us a little bit at the back in the back in the day he actually like did some shows with us where he tuned guitars and stuff like that um and then he and i just became friends and for a long time you know like when i first heard him play i really felt like you know we were kindred spirits as players um and i wanted us to play together but you know i was in i you know, I was in that band and there was no space in it for him. And then when I wasn't in that band, he was doing something where there was no space for me. And um, and then we eventually, like around 91 or so, is the first time I played. You know, he had formed Stuck Mojo and it was much more of kind of a, a funk rock band. Uh, Bones, the, the front man, had kind of just come in and they were still kind of trying to figure out who they were. Yeah. And so I played with them, you know, just locally. 
And, uh, you know, for a while it didn't quite work out. And then it wasn't until, you know, like 96 when after they had actually scored a record deal and put out their first album, the drummer that they had at the time, uh, Brent wasn't working out. And that's when, you know, Rich asked me to come back into the fold. Um, yeah. So he and I have known each other since 1988. Yeah. This, I mean, anybody that listens to any of your work and, I, and, and the many, many times I've, I've stood side of stage watching you two guys play. It is, it is very obvious that there's that wonderful connection that guitarists and, and drummers have where you kind of, you can speed up and slow down and everything and it kind of this wonderful um, thing that happens. It's, all, it's totally unsaid and, and, and you, Rich, really, really have that. I mean, in between you joining, like, Stuck Mojo in 96 then, what's happening in those couple of years in the interim then? Just um, trying, you know, to make different things happen, you know. Um I played with a I played with a progressive band called Salem Ash that was a local progressive band, um, and that was really like, like influenced by like Yes and Dream Theater and stuff like that. And so I learned a lot about how to play an odd time and, and uh, you know how to play songs that just that like switched time signatures and you know played three across four, you know those kinds of things. And that was a really good education. Um, I really, I got comfortable with, you know, doing that kind of thing. I mean, I'm no, I'm no Portnoy or anything like that, but, you know, I learned that kind of playing, you know, and I have, I have some, uh, uh, feel for being able to do that kind of thing. And I really thought that band was going to do a lot of things, but, you know, it's one of those things as a, as a musician, a lot of times you look back on the stuff that you thought was going to make it, so to speak. And then as a, you know, with maturity and age, you look back and go, what was I thinking? Why would I have ever thought that would make, you know, not that it wasn't good, not that they're, you know, not that it didn't have some kind of potential, but you just realize, first of all, as you get older, you just realize how, you know, difficult it is to carve out a place in music world, you know, and any creative, you know, any creative endeavor, it's, it's hard to find a place in it, you know, for every success story, there's, how many people who who it's, tried yeah, and just said this is too hard as well I'm done. frustrating that sometimes it comes down to luck as well it doesn't you can be great you can be a, a superb a great musician and a great band but there's elements of luck as well it, it, it's it could drive you crazy sometimes thinking about it you know it's like yeah. this should have worked why didn't it work and it was and it's based to luck and, and time yeah. and there's got to be a it's it's there's you know to success in anything creative you know, there's always got to be some sort of an X factor, you know, there's Mm. something you can't quite put your finger on that works, you know, that people respond to. And you, it's very hard to purposely create that, Mm. you know, it kind of is there's, it's, you know, magic happens, you know, and uh, you can, you can persist and, you know, something for yourself, but, you know, those, the, the artists and the bands that have really had like, amazing success the kind of success where everybody knows who they are there's just something intangible that you can't create it's just got to happen you know yeah it's so were you were you doing touring before stuck mojo were you were you touring before stuck mojo did you go out i imagine you went out of state how far did you go around the country before you went to stuck mojo and i imagine started touring a lot more well stuck mojo was the first band that i actually did any real legitimate touring with um that band um that band salem ash we would play out of state but there's a difference between you know like piling in a van with a trailer you know driving to 
you know, the next state over Alabama or something, doing a show and then coming home the next day. You know, we, that was the kind of thing that we did was, you know, we would do some shows out of state. We even went as far as, uh, you know, like as far west as New Orleans, you know, from Atlanta. That's, you know, a, a good ways. But the actual touring of like doing, you know, a show in one city one night and then another show in another city the next night and then the next and the next and and sleeping on the road and and all that stuff that I never experienced that until Stuck Mojo was actually legitimately touring. So in 96, when I joined them, that was my first real experience with being in a uh, like a, a real touring act it's like when um ladies and gentlemen when i i, I like i say i've been privileged enough to, to to share buses with 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 frank and rich and do some tours with them and i often looked at you guys as being a really good example of how to handle yourself on the road because aside from being a musician and that mm-hmm. side of it and looking after your your your, your, your instruments and things like that the, that's only a very small portion of touring um and so I looked at you guys, especially like the likes of Rich, about how to look after yourself and what you're eating, how you look after yourself physically working out and, and, and taking care of yourself on tour. And were they were they initially, did that come as a shock when you first started touring then, especially with like uh, Stuck Mojo, where you're playing like night after night, sometimes not only different states, but different countries. Was that, did that take a, a while to get used to or was it something you found? Yeah, yeah it, it, it took a beat, yeah. It took a while for me. <clears throat> it took a while for me to get used to because, you know, I was already already a little older than I mean, it was 96. So I was already like 29 years old and um, was kind of uh, somewhat set in my ways, I guess. And, it you know, getting used to being on the road and touring took some time. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people can't deal with it. They do their first kind of tour and all of a sudden they realize, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want to I don't want to be away from home you know, for weeks at a time or whatever. I mean, some people really take to it. Some people, some people don't. I mean, we've had people that were part of our crew that like two weeks into a tour, they were like, man, I want, I don't want any part of this. I want to go home, you know? And um, so, and I was, for me, I was always kind of in between. It was like, there was a lot of it I enjoyed, but a lot of it I didn't. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, my personality is I'm, I'm much more of a homebody than it had than an adventurer. Um, but I did, you know, I was, I was younger and I was, you know, enjoying the process of like being on the road and touring and everything, but you know, the travel can, can wear on you, you know? And, uh, so I was always kind of in between. I, I loved the playing and I loved the, you know, doing shows and I loved all that aspect of it, but you know, the, 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 the nuts and bolts of actually traveling, was never my favorite, you know, but I wanted the, I wanted the success of the band so bad that, you know, I just did it, but it was an adjustment period. I had to, you know, I had to learn, you know, I grew up not technically an only child, but I kind of grew up somewhat as an only child. So I didn't come from a big family, even though I had one sister. Um, you know, I, I also, I kind of grew up the way an only child does in that, like, I had the kind of mom who would kind of do anything for me. I wanted, you know, if I wanted, you know, if I wanted a sandwich, I didn't have to make it myself. Mom would go in the kitchen and make it for me. You know, I had the kind of mother, God bless her. You know, she's a wonderful person, but I, I kind of developed a case of learned helplessness from her. I was one of those kids who could just kind of get her to do stuff for me. Or if I was in trouble, get help or have her help me get out of it, and, you know, and that was some, 
that was some bad habits to have as a, as a kid. And I had to, you know, I always struggled with that. And so being on the road with a, with a band like that, you know, you really have to be aware of the people around you. You have to be, you know, courteous of the people around you because you're in each other's faces all the time. And I wasn't used to that. And so it was an adjustment period for me to learn how to, um, you know, you know, consider the uh, other people around me and not just myself, you know, and, um, I don't want to make it sound like I was just, you know, terrible to be around, but, you know, I I just, uh, I had to learn how to behave a little bit. And especially with a band like Stuck Mojo, we didn't have a ton of support. We weren't like one of those bands in the eighties that just had a record label, just pouring money at them, you know, so they could act, you know, act crazy on the road and know that like, Oh, when they trashed a hotel room or something that it'd be paid for. Oh, yeah. yeah. When something got broken, somebody else was paying for it. There was a budget, you know, that, some of the stuff I've heard about some people's budgets, like in the studio, they spent, you know, millions of dollars to record something that they were being efficient. They could have done for a quarter of that, you know, but we weren't one of those bands. We didn't have that kind of a budget. We always had to think about, you know, like when I was playing, you know, if I had a drum pair of drumsticks that was just cracking or something, I couldn't just throw them out into the crowd and use a new pair. I had to think, no, I got to pay for those, you know, so I have to conserve, I have to, you know, be smart about it. So, and, uh, so that's where that kind of uh, that mentality with that band came from was like, we don't have a choice. You know, we have if we're going to stay on the road and try to build something, we have to be a little bit more conservative minded and, and business minded than, than a, just some bunch of guys out to have a good time. Yeah, well, th- but those type of lessons really serve you well, though, don't they? When you when you go into like because, uh, you know, Sukhmojo became you know, really big. There was, a, you know, there's a real at one point there was a real, real buzz about them mm-hmm. you certainly you know there's some of you know uh, some of their albums are, are, are seminal are seminal classics they just are and you must have like you know to get to go through that those all prepare you for even bigger things you know as we'll talk mm-hmm. about in, in a little bit when you start getting onto a bigger stage and have bigger things kind of thrown at you this is all stuff that prepares you and like you say yeah. some some people don't can't accept that and some people can't deal with it and and the, the touring especially will will separate the weak from the chaff. It will sort out people because it's a it's a rigorous process. But also yeah. things like fame and dealing with being and then celebrity and then dealing with larger and larger crowds. That's a that's a work too. So like you know, it's important that you do play in front of hundred people as as you move up the the sort of the success. When you play in front of hundred thousand people, you've had all these lessons that kind of put things in play. It's always yeah. you can see a band that's well, like that. I, I should say I have no experience with playing in front of a hundred thousand people. I've never done that. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Sure, I can't sure. speak to playing in front of a hundred thousand people because I've never done that. But it's it's you can see in bands that have had that where they've had the experience of learning their chops, learning their craft, having to deal with you know being difficult. And it, and what is interesting, I think, and certainly from the people I talk to, who have taught a long time is it actually folds back into the music. And it means that because you go through this difficult time with these people, it means that when you play together, especially when you lock in on a groove or something like that, it, it somehow gets enhanced by the fact that you've all been through this shit and have all been through this difficult time. It's almost kind of makes you better, weirdly. Like, oh, you yeah. know, it, it kind of strengthens the bond and, and things become better. And often bands that have been touring for a long time end up sounding better it's it's a really beautiful and strange thing that you know the beatles are a good example of that you know they they go over to hamburg and just play relentlessly and i'm sure that they bonded 
unbelievably had to be creating this amazing unit. So when they come to end up being just simply in the studio as they ended up, they have already kind of learned to how each other clicks. They know the next note that the other person's going to play. And it means that they can write stuff clearer and get to the point very quickly, you know, and an enjoyable process to kind of go through. But it's a necessary one, I think. And so uh, how far are we from getting to what many will possibly know you from in Fozzie then? How far are we away from that? So this was, what, 1990, with Stuck Mojo you joined in, what, 1996, did you say? Yeah, um, yeah. you know, Technically, in 96, you know, I was in the band once earlier, but that was before the band was signed. We were just a local band playing. Yeah. Uh, 96 is when I joined the band and they were had put an album out, were signed. I, I start um, I recorded the second album with them. And that was that was from 96 through 2000. And okay. um, in 2000 was when the band like kind of peaked. And we had had a chance to get signed to a major label, but um, it actually in 98 was when the band had a chance to get signed to a major label. And uh, we almost did, but it just didn't work out um, because we were still obligated to the independent label that we were on. And the negotiations between the two labels just broke down and there was nothing we could do. We were just like just stuck in the middle. So we just continued on and that's, um, it wasn't long after that that Corey, our bass player, who was with us at the time, left to go on to do other things, and we replaced him, and we recorded, uh, we put out a live album, and we put out a declaration of a headhunter in 2000, and um, in, a, in, in one way, it was probably our best record, but, you know, the band was really fractured at that point, mm-hmm. and um, it was you know, we had become cr- uh, friends with Chris Jericho at that point, and that's when Fozzie came into being just kind of as a, a project, you know, because we mostly did covers and uh, we had the kind of, uh, we were kind of what Steel Panther was before they existed. Yeah. You know, we had the wigs, wigs and the costume and we're playing on had that different whole. names and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had, you know, I, my name was KK LaFlame and yeah. Rich's name was Duke LaRue and, and Chris was Moon Goose McQueen and all that yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and we got signed uh to i think it was megaforce in 2000 put out the first record and there was a big push behind fozzy at that point because they thought that you know this is going to be you know this huge thing chris is a wrestling star and what we were doing they thought it was just going to take off and a lot of people just kind of couldn't separate the whole because we were trying to keep like a, a separation between wrestling and and uh and uh the band and yeah you know, people just didn't quite understand what we were trying to do. They didn't understand it. And, um, but that's where Fozzie started. And we did another record along those lines. And in 2005, it's when we decided to pursue the band as like a, an original band with no gimmick, you know, like mm. our, our names, no costumes, you know, no long hair wigs and all original music. And so in 2005 is when we really kind of legitimized as a band. Yeah. Cause that's like, you know, it, that's there's an enormous amount of things that get introduced when someone like Chris becomes a member of the band because, like I say, that then it brings a fame element into it. There's a whole section of fans that you know didn't know your music uh, and are now watching it because they, they they enjoyed what Chris was doing, and it brings mm-hmm. in a whole different set of problems and you know opportunities as well. That you know you you may be asked to go on tours and do shows that you maybe wouldn't hadn't have been asked. Isn't it funny, Frank, that we can. That back then, that was like him to be a professional wrestler and then to be a singer in a band was seen as like, whoa, you can't do both things. 
now right. you can do you can do that and it's no one blinks an eye it's like you can do these roles and that roles it seems like at the time we were still in a in a world where you you are this you're this only this one thing and you can't be anything else and if you mm-hmm. try you know you can't be a movie star and a, and a rock star you can't be a a, a film star or whatever mix it up with other you can't do these other things but now that seems to be the case that you can you know like you know yeah. Corey taylor can go and act in something and then be in slipknot and no one cares no one's everybody's like well that's just what they do now it's interesting that you know chris i talked to chris about it before about you know he probably had to work maybe harder because he's going from one profession to another be whatever mm-hmm. profession it may be and then right. and, and and has to struggle with that and it's you know and that must have been incredibly difficult as a band to go from well we've established ourselves as as this kind of almost as a cover band act to move into something with a bit more um you know originality and a bit more you know of your own music and become this own and make that switch because it's the same band you're just renaming it and re sort of producing what you are and then to go out and do your own songs that's that's you know there's no question here it's just, it seems to me like it must have been a, a quite a tough time as well. It's a, a difficult time where you go, okay, we have to have the strength of resolve to believe that we're good enough to write these songs and play these songs as well, uh, because we're going to get, we're going to get, take a few bullets on this. Yeah. Well, it was, it was hard um, to say, you know, it was a double-edged sword in that having, so, you know, being working with somebody like Chris who had a name and had notoriety, you know, so people knew who he was. Um, as soon as he does something, some kind of project, a music project, whatever, there's going to be a curiosity factor about it. People want, you know, people who are fans of his as a wrestler are going to want it, are going to be interested in whatever he does. And they're going to want to, you know, um, so that afforded us some opportunities that a lot of opportunities that, uh, and just of, of a bunch of guys who are just coming out of the basement and trying to, you know, make a career for themselves. It afforded us a lot of opportunities that a band like that wouldn't have. So we were lucky in that sense, but also, you know, when you're talking about the world of rock and heavy metal, that's something that, you know, that's a fan base that takes things very seriously, you know, and there was a lot of resentment about not only the fact that Chris was a wrestler, but the fact that, you know, Fozzie had started off as, you know, as more of like a, almost more like a comedy act than, than a real band. And so there was, there was a lot of resistance to us as well. There were a lot of people who were like, I, I don't have any interest in some wrestlers, man. You know, yeah. uh, who do you, you know, who do you think you are? You know, you think you can just, uh, you know, you're famous wrestler. You think you can just get in front of a microphone on stage and people are going to pay attention to you. You know, it doesn't work like that. Pal. And there was a lot of that kind of attitude towards us, you know? Mm. So, you know, it was, it was that double-edged sword. I won, you know, and people also resented the fact there were some people you know, a, a part of the fan base resented the fact that they thought well, it's so easy for you. You know, you're already famous. So, you know, you form yeah. a band and you're famous, you know, whereas yeah, other yeah. people have to, you know, they have to get out there and work and tour and struggle to get where you are just by, you know, the fact that you're famous. So, yeah. um, so we always had to work against that. And I think with time, you know, if we had just like put out those first two albums and then, and then quit, people would have thought, Oh, see, I told you, you know, it was just a, some some wrestlers vanity project you know he just wanted to oh like i want to be in a band so i put together a band and that's all there is to it if we had quit after those first two albums we would have a lot of people would have felt vindicated but Mm. we didn't we kept going and i think with time and you know putting out albums and putting out music and and working at it 
even some people who might have been against us at the beginning had to admit to themselves, well, I mean, they must they must take it seriously because they they're still doing it, you know. Well, there's a there's a very good reason why you know uh, that you you did still do it and you did have the back catalogue that you've got and the success that you've had is because forget all that, it's a really good band with really well, good you. songs. It, that's the truth. I mean, I came in, I can't came onto Fozzy around Grail around mm-hmm. that time, which is my personal favourites. But I, you know, if, if I'm honest, yeah, that's probably why I came to that because I was a, a young guy watching wrestling, and, and there's a thing of this, this guy that I'm watching is also doing this album. But it, 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 but I was I was happy enough to to kind of go past and go. Well, hold on, let's just listen to. It. Does it? Is it good? Is it? Forget all yeah. that. Is it? Is it good? And if it is, then fuck. I don't care about. Yeah. The, where the guys came from to make that doesn't matter. It's 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 just really good. Um, and yeah, that's the way it should, that's the way it should be. Really, yeah, it's, it's like, how it should yeah. be. I mean, it's not always the way on it their is. Own merit. Yeah, it should be on, on exactly on its own merit. So when so now you're playing and you're playing like you know tours and what have you uh, uh, and that type of thing. And did you did you ever kind of have that moment where you think you know I mean was it with Stuck Mojo was it before where you thought you know what I am now that. I am that I am that working musician. You know what? There's no longer a need for the tux- tuxedo in the wardrobe. I am a working musician. I can do this. Yeah, uh, uh, you know. Did you, did you have that moment with Stuck Mojo? Did it take to get to Fozzy, where you were, were obviously working quite a lot? When did that happen? I don't really specifically remember the period of time. It was a long time ago mm. where I had that kind of conversation with myself, where I had to realize, all right, you know. I'm not going to be an 18 year old millionaire playing on, you know, playing on my next record and, you know, uh, looking at my next arena tour and stuff like that, you know, and, uh, the, the, the reality of, uh, just trying to make a living at this set in. And I think it was probably before it was probably before stuck mojo was probably before 96. It might've been in the early nineties where it was like, do I want to just give up on this completely? And just get a job like most people do, which is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, or do I want to try to, you know, am I committed to this, you know, like for better or for worse, I'm a working player. I'm a musician. Mm. Even if I got to have the tuxedo in the closet, is that what I want? You know? And I, that's what I told myself, you know, it's like come hell or high water by, you know, hook or by crook. I'm going to, I'm a musician. Well, even if I ended up, you know, destitute and poor and in a drainage ditch somewhere, that's, it's this or nothing, you know? And, uh, that's what kept me in the game for so long. And, and fine. I have no regrets about that decision. I try, you know, I try not to look backwards and say, man, I shouldn't, I should have zigged. I, I, I should have, I zigged when I should have zagged. I mean, everybody's tempted by that. And I'm not going to say I never entertain those thoughts, but I always try to be a forward looking person, you know, mm. and, um, particularly now, you know, mm. I, I have to be forward looking. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, that's what I did. And, um, it's just gotten to a point for me where, you know, I never, and th- that's the thing is like what they say, life is what happens when you're making plans or what mm. have you. And, and, life throws you curveballs and um i was when i was younger i thought i'm i i thought i probably won't ever get married i have no interest in getting married and i definitely don't have any interest in having children you know Mm. i thought of myself as the guy who was never going to have kids and i i was too selfish for kids Mm. i you know and i was fine with that i know that about myself 
and then, uh, you know, I ended up becoming a father and, and, uh, it was one of those things where I, um, you know, I, I, I'm ashamed to say it, or I, I hate to say it, but if I'm being honest, when I found out when my wife confirmed for me that we were pregnant, I was not happy about it, you know, because yeah. I was like, I don't want this. I don't want the responsibility, the responsibility of being a father. Cause I remember when stuck mojo was touring and I would see guys who were out on the road for months at a time while they had a kid at home. I thought that's not right. You need to be at home with your kid. You don't need to be out here on the road. And I used to tell myself the day I find out I'm going to be a father. If I, if I do, you know, that's the day I quit music and go work for UPS or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then when I, so it was in 2014 when I found out, well, I'm going to be a father. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, well, I have to quit. I told myself I would, and now I have to. And my wife was like, don't even think you're quitting music. I know what you're thinking. And that <laughs> year, she's like, I know you, that's what you're thinking, and you're yeah. not going to quit. Yeah. And, you know, God bless her. She gave me that out. You know, she gave me, you know, because she, she told me, I've seen you when you're not able to tour, when you're not able to play. You're not a happy person. You're not fulfilling yourself, and you're no good to a child. If you're, you know, yeah. unhappy like that, she so knows I, you, I kept, she knows you has uh, so she I knows kept you. at it, yeah. but then, you know, this last year, I just discovered that it's like, I don't know if I really want to do this anymore. You mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm, I feel kind of trapped because I've been trying for so long and chasing it for so long mm -hmm. and it had become just like, well, this is what I do to make a living, mm -hmm. you know? But it's it's weird, you know. I wrote about all this, um, and uh, it was a very strange thing to go through the pandemic period and be away from the road for so long and just be yeah. thinking, you know, when we're going to get to tour again? God, I can't wait till all this crap is over so I can get back on the road again. And then once we got back on the road again, it was like, huh, I don't know if I want to be on the road anymore because. Yeah. It's one thing to be away, and we never toured for seriously long periods of time. We were never out. You know, it's not like we were home, away from home for six months at a time or something. Yeah. It would go out for, you know, a week, three weeks, a month, five, six weeks, come home, have a break, which is a really relaxed touring schedule, honestly. Yeah. And because um, with Stuck Mojo, I remember, you know, we had one year where we did over 200 shows in a year, you know, and uh, we would do 12 and 14 shows without a day off. And so the, the Fozzie touring schedule was much more relaxed than that, but I'm also older, you know, I mean, I'm in my fifties, I'm 54 years old. I never would have said that before being in stuck, you know, being in Fozzie. I didn't want to admit how old I was, you know, but now I'm like, I'm just being me, man. I'm a 54 yeah. year old man. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. Yeah. And my son has just turned seven and he's yeah. much more aware when he's a, when you're when a baby's an infant and you're gone for two weeks, they don't really know, mm. you know, but as a seven year old, he knows, you know, and I remember that la the very last tour we did, I was really unhappy because it's like, I don't, I don't want to be away from him for a day. It's a few weeks, you know? Yeah. And, um, we were supposed to tour with, uh, you know, the Fozzie tour we did in the UK just now was supposed to also include two weeks of shows with the guardians of the jukebox, which is right. the eighties band. Yeah. That I, I was in with rich and for, for whatever reason, we weren't able to make that tour happen. I think, you know, it has something to do with COVID and, and, uh, mm. and, uh, vaccination and all that stuff. I won't go into the details, but as it yeah. was, we were supposed to come home on December 24th, you know, we were supposed to fly home on Christmas Eve mm. and, 
you know, so we were going to be gone for almost a month. And when I found out that we weren't doing that tour, I didn't like the fact that we weren't getting to go over and play in England because it would have been great. But yeah. being away from home for a month and then flying home on Christmas Eve when I have a seven-year-old at home, I was just like, nah. yeah, I, I, I didn't want to admit it to myself, you know, because it, it made me feel like a traitor and it made me feel like a weakling and it made me feel like a, a wimp, you know, yeah. like I'm a road dog. I'm a musician. I'm not a wimp who wants to be at home, you know, yeah. yeah. but I realized I was lying to myself. I wanted to be at home. I got to see um, Frank, the, the father, almost in real time. Because I remember we'd we'd done some shows, and then you went off and 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 had the and we had he had the baby. And I remember coming back a, like a year or so later, and we were in a, a show somewhere, and 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 I I wasn't working. I'd just come to see you guys, and I remember saying, "How's the family?" And I remember the look on your face just lit up, and I, and I was like, "This guy is like you know." He's realized what fatherhood is and realizes yeah. just how amazing it is. And I saw that. Yes. And it was, it was such a joy to see. It was such a really nice thing to see. And you're right. You. you know, it's, it, it's hard to, to do. You want to be there for those formative years. You want to, you do, you want, you want to be around, you know, and, and you right. know, for the important moments, the Christmases and, and the birthdays and what have you. And touring, even on a reduced touring cycle still robs you of some of those birthdays and some of those little key important moments. And you know, I think what was what was beautiful though, when, ladies and gentlemen, I, I would suggest looking at, at Frank's page and the stuff that he's that, he, that he's done. And when he put up the about that you were leaving the road for 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 a time, there was a wonderful lot of messages from people you'd worked with. Mm-hmm. You got to yeah. see an insight. Is, is is if you weren't around, Frank, this is this is what would have happened. Where people were saying, oh, "I remember Frank. He was this guy." You got to see that because a lot of people were saying how. You know, the people who had worked with you saw how you dealt with the road, saw you, how you dealt with it as a professional musician and how you were as a person and learnt a lot from that. And, and you know, I want you to know that a lot of people who you work with, who are now working with many other acts, you know, were very grateful to work with you, Frank, and learnt a lot. You know, you passed on knowledge. You may not even, even something you're aware of, but just the way you held yourself was was something that people would would take from that. And one of the things wow. that I wanted to that's good say, to hear. Thank you. I appreciate it's that. It's the truth. It's the absolute truth. Is the you know we had had a conversation with with a couple of people who'd, who'd work with you as well, and they were all like, you know, what a sweetheart he was. You know, you know, and what uh, the you were you were one of the first people I seen come off the bus in the morning and go for a run, mm. and I was <laughs> like, what the fuck? You can do that. You you, you can do that. And, you know, I need to Rich, do it more, actually. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Rich would be like a guy who'd be like using a juicing thing and, and making juice. To it. And I'd be like, "What the fuck? This isn't what I thought you could. You had to tour. You had to like get up at three o'clock in the afternoon." So, and you changed yeah. a lot of my perceptions about that. And 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 certainly when you're on the bus and after the show, how how to just you know handle yourself if there's an argument or you disagree. With, and honestly, I, I, I learned a lot. I know a lot of other people did. Um, and so, like I said before, we came on the show here. You know, thanks again for that, Frank. It's, it means a lot. And you, you probably never know how many people you influence, not just as a drummer, because you would have introduced, influenced a lot of people just drumming who would have seen you like you saw a young Peter Chris uh, doing mm-hmm. that. People would have saw you and gone, "That's I want to be that guy." But moreover, how to how to act as a, a professional musician, you know, and, and and I mean that most sincerely, my friend. And so thank you. Now you come you come off tour. And I think it's important probably to underline this whole thing is that you're not retiring from music. That's no. not really that's not that's not what's happening. You know, it's just no. that you're going, okay, 
it's time to take some steps back as I look at this thing here now yes. and, and a family and that, and let's see what happens. And that's like, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And it only means that it should you return to any kind of forum like that, you'll just return with an even bigger love for it. You know, you, there's no love yeah. lost here, you know? And so the, the interesting thing I want to talk about as we kind of wrap things up here is the, is the art side of things. Cause it was the first time I remember doing merch or, or being involved with merch at one point with you guys and you were signing skins and, and signing the head, mm-hmm. bits and pieces and drumsticks and what have you. And that was kind of, that's now the norm. It wasn't when I saw you guys doing it, but it was kind of the norm. But then I mm-hmm. noticed that you would start to do art things with that. Um, so when did mm-hmm. the, when did art start to make its way into things? Well, um, I always kind of had an affinity for it. When I was young, I used to draw a lot. I mean, when I was a kid in school, you know, just like on notebook paper with a pen, you know, I was drawing, you know, pictures of Kiss and drawing logos. And I was really, I was really interested in that, you know, visual thing, you know, visual presentation. And I always got told by, you know, family members that I was, you know, oh, you're such a good artist, you know, and I thought, yeah, right, whatever you just say, (laughs) you're my mom, you have to say that, you know, and, um, but, and then, you know, other things, other things uh, would take precedent, you know, and so I didn't keep up with drawing and art, you know, but I think it was always there. And I I said in my, my uh, story that I wrote that my uncle, in Spain, Carlos Fonsere was a, was an artist and very well-respected and well-known artist. And so I guess, uh, I have some of that hereditary, uh, heredity in me. And, um, I also, I, it was just always kind of in the back of my mind. I really love one of these days to pursue making art, you know? And, um, I, one thing that has, that struck me and my wife can attest to this was I would say, you know, we lived in an apartment and I would say, I would really love it if I had a big basement or like a big place where I could like hang huge canvases on the wall and throw paint at them, you know, and make like, you yeah. know, modern art. And I would, uh, I had a job out, you know, when, uh, you know, you always, I always had a job, at, uh, you know, in music cause I always had to keep, uh, you know, some kind of other income coming in. And a lot of people do, um, and I would, I was uh, working with a guy, and uh, he had a remodeling business. So we were always going through Home Depot or you know uh, hardware places, and I would see some kind of interesting tool or an interesting implement of some kind, and think, wow, that'd be cool to try to make art with. And I, I don't know why those those ideas were always in my head, and I just never pursued them. Hmm. And then in 2019, I, I remember I was trying to think of a way to, you know, I was always trying to uh, like uh, market like old drum heads and cymbals and stuff like that to people to, for extra income. And I, I think I saw somebody had painted drum heads before and I thought, well, that's a good idea. Maybe I should try that, you know, and sell them at shows, whatever. And uh, like many things that people do when they say, Oh, I should do this or do that. I'm, I'm sure you can relate. You know, everybody always thinks, you know, one of these days I'm going to do this. One of these days I'm going to, I'm going to try this or try that. You know, everybody has new year's resolutions that they give up after a couple of months. And I remember my wife and I were, uh, in just in a Walmart and we passed the arts and crafts section and they had all the paint, you know, just like craft paint. And I thought one of these days, I'm just going to grab a bunch of those bottles of paint and take them home and just, you know, like try spilling them on a can, you know, just try yeah, anything. And, and I just was like, 
stop saying someday you're going to do it and just go buy some. It's a few bucks. Just do it. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, I, even though I've never practiced it or, or I haven't practiced it enough, I'm a big believer in the idea of just like taking, you know, taking an action when you think I should do something, we'll just, you know, yeah. do, do a little something, anything, just, you know, try. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nobody's life coach because I haven't exactly lived my life that way, but I'm trying to be more like that, where if it's, you feel like you should try something, just try it for God's sake. And that's what I did. And I really enjoyed it. And it was just like a solitary pursuit. I'm kind of a solitary guy. I like doing things. I, I like pursuing things on my own. And it really just struck me. And I, it just kind of lit something inside me. And I started getting online, looking up, you know, uh, modern art and, you know, artists and painting and all the, you know, and starting to discover other people's styles. And, uh, and it just, I just discovered, I was like, man, we, I we really love see, doing Yeah. We, we, anybody that follows Frank's Instagram and social media will see that he did exactly what he did with when he, when he, when he first sort of learned the drums, he just fell into the, the rabbit hole of, of art and you, yeah. and you know, as you know, people will see this as well, when they see this, you have a proper plan, a proper, you are really exploring a, a particular thing and particular methods and particular styles. You've got a mm. number of pieces up that follow, you know, a whole, you could do, you know, insta an installation, for example, there is a, 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 it's not just random pictures of, of, of landscapes or whatever is it. There's a style, there's a very definitive sort of route that you're taking. It's very clear that you have you. read and understood a, a particular, you know, particular medium. Um, you know, it's not just a case of like, you know, Frank throws some paint. It's not that it's, it's, there's a very, de you know, deliberate process to what you're doing. And that's probably speaks to your, your nature and how you approach something that you are clearly very passionate about. Well, when you first start with something like that, whether it's art or music or anything else, it's this entire world or landscape that's so, you know, overwhelming and confusing. And you, th you think about all these things. It's like, well, I have to, I have to do this out of the other thing. And I started watching videos about techniques and how you should do, you know, this and color mixing and all these things. And, you know, you go to an art supply store and it's just so overwhelming, but it's overwhelming in a way like, my God, I wish I had a million dollars. I'd come in here and I would just buy everything and I would yeah. try everything. And, and it's really easy to get off track and get distracted by that, you know, by how much you want to do. And, I remember as I was looking around at art online and I tried all kinds of, you know, ways of doing things. You just experiment, you know, you yeah. just try. I remember a guy told me that he learned to ski by going, you know, when he was at a, a ski resort, he said he took the ski lift to the top of the mountain. He didn't start on the bunny slope. He said, I went to the top of that mountain and <laughs> rolled, you know, rolled down basically and got up and went up to the top again and <laughs> rolled down again. And I just kept doing it. <laughs> until I figured out how to do it, yeah. you know, and that's kind of what, I, what my approach was, was I was just trying different things. And when I started seeing like really sharp geometric, uh, painting, you know, it really appealed to me because I love the kind of order chaos dynamic, you know, mm. uh, imposing order on chaos is what you're doing basically when you're creating art, you're, um, you're taking infinite possibility and you're channeling it into, a specific pathway, you know, and I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try doing that to the most extreme degree that I can, which is basically just one shade of black on a white canvas and 
you know, geometric form and how far can I take that? And the first one I did, I, you know, just basically bought some canvas and, and cause I was trying, I wanted to buy some art supplies and I was like, well, what do I buy? You know? And I thought, all right, buy one color. I'd already tried different colors and I've got a bunch of paint around, but I was like, just get one color black and, and one background white yeah. and go from there. And once I did that, once I like bought some canvases and I just like taped off a geometric area and went over it with black, let it dry and peeled the tape up and saw what was there. I was just like, I just, it, something it, about it just. Isn't yeah. it interesting that we, because we talked on this show now about when you first picked up a drum, you got bought a drum and you yes. learned how to drum and then, okay, you were in this and now you're going to get a whole drum kit and then you got a better drum kit. And you, you know, isn't it interesting that that kind of apes that, that that kind of mimics that you, okay, well, let's limit myself to one color, one particular sort of you know, geometrical shapes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And in, by doing so, I can then hone in and really kind of get to grips and my fingers underneath of what's going yes. on here before I go and become, you know, and complicate it or not, or, you know, and that's why I imagine a lot of artists have phases and where they go, okay, yes. let's, let's stop. Let's, let's pinpoint something in particular and really focus and, get into a deep understanding of what's going on and really explore something and then move to other things. You know, most artists Mm -hmm. are famous for particular phases rather than their whole thing is because they zoned in and got, you know, got, got kind of onto that. And so ladies and gentlemen, I'll put links on the show, um, but the Frank has a, has a GoFundMe thing as well, which I I, I encourage you to check out so we can support him and, and kind of show that, you know, that this is interesting. I like, I think those things are fabulous. I, I, I was looking at a couple of them and I thought, these are things I would I would see hanging and be like, that's fine. So you're an artist now, my friend. You you always wear, but you are Thank an artist, you. you know. And I'll certainly come to the first where you do an installation. I will I would love to be there, whatever that whatever that may be. As I uh, well, thank you. As I wrap this up now, there's two final questions. Normally it's one, but I'll tell you why it's two in a sec. The, the, sure. the final sort of question is, um, you know, you were I saw I remember you doing the the Kiss Cruise. And you got the chance to, you would have met Kiss and, you know, you'd add the photos and you, you, you had the conversations with them. You know, what, what would you have said to that kid who was watching Peter Chris on stage going, by the way, in X amount of time, you're going to be playing on the same cruise as this guy and you'll be able to say hello and he'll know who you are. What would you have said to that, that little guy then? Oh, man, you know what? I, I don't even know. I don't know what <laughs> I would have said to myself back then. Um you know what? I could probably, the problem with a question like that is, is I could probably write a book for the answer. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. You know, um, just if I had to pick something quick and pithy to say <laughs> that I would have just said, you know, that dream you've got, you know, just get after it and, and, uh, and, and work hard towards it because it'll pay off in ways that you don't even understand. And that's, that's one of the things that I've always tried to remind myself is that if you work towards something and you really work towards it, you know, diligently, you never know, you know, it might turn out, it might not turn out exactly like you had predicted or planned, but something positive will come out of it, something you know? Yeah. And that's kind of where I am now. It's like, if you had asked me when I was that kid, where do you think you'll be? I would not have said where I am now, yeah. but you know, I'm, I'm really excited about where I am now. I'm really excited about the future. And, um, you know, it was, I, I, 
you know, you, you mentioned the GoFundMe and, and I appreciate you mentioning that and, and uh, linking to it. It's a strange thing. The whole idea of like doing something like that. It feels weird to me to, cause like I, I wrote an entire story about why I was doing it. And one of the yeah. reasons, one of the things I said was that a, a lot of people probably assume that, you know, I have tons of money from being in Fozzie that I've like really done well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm get, I'm doing okay. I'm getting by, but to start a whole new venture like that, um, you know, it's going to take some time and effort. And I really want to produce, you know, I really want to pursue something creative and, and, uh, you know, any, every little bit helps. And I, I said it in the story, there's certainly people out there who are much more deserving than I am, you know? Um, but if you want to help somebody, do something creative and, and, and be an artist and, and who's going to really, you know, work towards it, you know, you, you won't be throwing your money away. So it's a, it's a strange thing to, to crowdfund. I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. Frank, it's but, uh, like, yeah, as, as strange as it is, as strange as it is, you are simply giving people a chance to thank you for what maybe you've done for their lives, mine, mine included, and everybody that I'm sure will has made some very nice things on your page and said some very nice things. You're just giving people a chance to support you, you know, and just go, okay, yeah. you know, look, here's a couple of books. You know, I thanks for what you did. You know, thanks for that show you played and whatever. Thanks for, you know, I, I really enjoyed that particular song or I really enjoyed that, that gig or whatever it may be. You're just opening the door and allowing people to thank you for that. Mate. That's that's what you're doing. That's why so far it's been so generously kind of put people have really put in because they're just saying, yeah. just saying thank you, man. It's the same way that if I saw you at the next show, I'd buy you a beer. It's the same <laughs> thing. It's the same thing. I will just I guess, I'll, yeah, I guess that is the same it's thing. It's the same <laughs> thing. It's just a way of you just open the door. And I know it's tough because we're we're still me and certainly me and yourself are are of that, you know, you don't ask for help and you know, you know, I'm not a charity case and there's other things right. you put your money to. You don't think that when you meet your friend in a bar and you go, Hey, how's it going? You know, let me buy you a drink or buy you a, I'll, I'll pay for right. this meal. You don't think that. Right. You just think that's the, and that's all this is. And it's a digital equivalent. But it leads me to my second question. Sure. If you had trouble with the first one, we'll have a nightmare with this one. Oh boy. Your little boy comes to you and says, dad, I'd like to learn the drums. What do you say? I say, of course. Yeah. I say, yeah. I say, if that's what you want to do, I'm all for it. But, I, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna take it seriously and you're not gonna, <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to say you're not going to give up because if you, if you try something and you find it's not really what you want to do, you know, that there's no problem with that. You're going to try all kinds of things in life. But I, I just want to, you know, to tell you that to, to, to make a go of it, you got to take it seriously and you got, it takes work, you know, sit down at the drums, play around, have fun, see if it's what you want to do. But if you really want to do it, what you're not going to do is you know, like, you know, just <laughs> sit around on your ass and think that success <laughs> is just going to come to you, you know? And, uh, that's the only thing I want for my son is just to like, you know, I want to just help him avoid some of the pitfalls that I've made, you know, some of the mistakes I've made in my life. And, um, you know, just, uh, I, the, you know, overall instilling of values is much more important to me with him than any particular thing that he wants to do. Because if you have the right value system and the right mindset and the way, the right way of looking at things, 
the actual thing you want to do is not nearly as important, you know. And there's and there's Frank thinking he wouldn't, you know, scared of being a father. He's textbook, textbook fatherhood <laughs> right there. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. I mean, we could. There's a billion stories, and there's all kinds of things we could talk about, and we've probably condensed Frank's entire career to very way too short. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, what a what an absolute pleasure to have uh, to buy uh, Frank Francois on on the show. Amazing! Thank you again for coming on, sir. I really appreciate your time, um, and we'll no doubt speak again soon. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. If you ever want to do it again, I'm here. Sit down at the drums, play around, have fun, see if it's what you want to do. But if you really want to do it, what you're not gonna do is <laughs> like you know just <laughs> sit around on your ass and think that success <laughs> is just gonna come to you, you know. And uh, that's the only thing I want for my son is just to like, you know, I want to just help him avoid some of the pitfalls that I've made, you know, some of the mistakes I've made in my life. And, um, you know, just uh, the, you know, overall instilling of values is much more important to me with him than any particular thing that he wants to do. Because if you have the right value system and the right mindset and the way, the right way of looking at things, the actual thing you want to do is not nearly as important, you know. And there's and there's Frank thinking he wouldn't, you know, scared of being a father. He's textbook, textbook fatherhood <laughs> right there. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. I mean, we could. There's a billion stories, and there's, there's all kinds of things we could talk about, and we've probably condensed Frank's entire career to very way too short. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, what a what an absolute pleasure to have uh, to buy uh, Frank Francois on on the show. Amazing! Thank you again for coming on, sir. I really appreciate your time, um, and we'll no doubt speak again soon. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. If you ever want to do it again, I'm here. That was Frank Francois there. What a what a wonderful human being and an absolute gentleman. It's really it's always good to catch up with Frank. He's one of those. You don't see an awful lot of interviews with, with Frank. I think there's been quite a few recently because obviously the nature of him leaving. Fozzy for a while and, and, and leaving the road for a while, but I thought it was just nice to 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 touch base with, with Frank. He's always always one of those sage voices on the on the tour bus, you know. Um, always one of those sane saner guys on there to to watch and see how how you do things. I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed catching up, and I hope you got something from that. I try and keep these conversations to around the hour mark. That seems to be the right sort of length. Um, and I hope you get some things from it. I hope it makes you laugh. I hope it makes you maybe think of some stuff. If you're thinking about the drums or thinking about anything, I hope it gives you some impetus to go and do these things, which is really what we're, we're, we always try to do on the Spoken Metal Show. As always, are the people that you want me to speak to on, on the show, both musicians and otherwise, if there are, as always, suggest them through the social media and I'll try and catch up with those people and have conversations as well. And I really hope that you enjoyed this particular episode, the first one of the year. And as always, I will see you at a show. 